Hi and welcome to the Demand Matrix podcast series Sunny Side Up. I'm Paroma. I'll be your host for the day. Hi Jay, welcome to the Demand Matrix podcast Sunny Side Up. It's great to have you here. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Paroma. Great. So, let's just get right to the point. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit about you? And of course about your current role at Serious Decisions. Sure. So my current role at Serious Decisions is I am a Chief Marketing Officer and Research Fellow at the company. I've been at Serious for about nine years now, but I spent most of that time as an analyst. So I ran our demand creation service for about three years and then spent the next four years running our marketing executive services, which are our services dedicated to meeting the needs of Chief Marketing Officers and other very senior marketing leaders. And then about two years ago, I became CMO. And the research fellow part just means I continue to be an analyst, too. I continue to work with some of our key CMO clients. And prior to coming to Sirius, I worked in B2B my entire career, both on the sales side as well as the marketing side. That's interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about your typical day at work? Sure. I can tell you it's pretty varied. Each day is not like the one before or the next one, which I like. I I appreciate it being that way. So on any given day, I'll be obviously working with my team and kind of managing the marketing operations here at Series Decisions. But as often, you might find me in the field. I do continue to work with a lot of our CMO clients, so I travel quite a bit to work with them because I'm always learning from them, and hopefully they're learning from me too. But I also spend a lot of time in the field with our sales team as well, which is something I think is really important for any CMO to do, really helps Mm -hmm. you understand your customers and their needs and your selling process. In addition to that, I'm usually working with the other leaders here at Syria to drive alignment uh, between marketing and the sales organization, as well as our product organization, which is a very large team of analysts. So what's interesting is this whole alignment with between sales and marketing, which has always been a struggle and point of concern for B2B companies. How do you generally approach this and how does alignment play a, play a key role in this overall process? It's a good question. So I approach it in a few ways. I would say the primary way that I approach it, and frankly, I advise my clients to approach it as well, is to create a common view of customers across sales, marketing, and product. And it's oftentimes the marketing leader who has to do that. So if everybody's on the same page, not just in terms of kind of your corporate goals, in terms of revenues and profitability and other targets, but really understands your customers in the same way, then it becomes pretty easy to understand who is responsible for what across what I call the three revenue functions, marketing, sales, and product. So that gets into understanding their buying process. It gets into understanding your key personas. And then again, from there, you can define how you're going to go to market and serve those customers. So having that as a foundation, I think is key. But also as a CMO, again, I think it's really important, especially on the sales side, um, to actually get out in the field. So I'm not the only one. I have pretty much everybody on my team spend time in the field as well with the sales organization. Um, And in addition to that, we do a lot of things that serious in terms of structure to create alignment as well. We're a pretty complex business for our scale. We have 17 different advisory services. We have consulting offerings, e-learning offerings. We do a number of very large uh, conferences, and we do all this globally. So we're not a giant company, but we have all this complexity. So we take a pretty structured campaign approach and, again, a persona-based approach to make sure we have coverage across the business and we align with the research side of the business in terms of the interesting data and publications that they're putting out as well. So as a CMO, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face and that you see other CMOs face in B2B marketing? 
It's a good question. So I think the challenges I face are probably a little bit different from what I see a lot of other CMOs facing. I'm lucky because being at Serious Decisions, we are rooted in understanding that strong alignment across functions is what drives profitable revenue growth. So marketing is a very well understood and respected function here at Sirius. Now that said, we've got a company with well over 100 marketing analysts in it. Um, that's not a challenge for me. It's a resource for me, but there's certainly no shortage of informed opinions about what we should be doing and how we okay. should be doing it. But even still in that context, alignment is challenging. Now, when I look at my clients and other CMOs, and I have talked to hundreds of CMOs over the past four or five years, honestly, I think the biggest challenge most of them have is their own CEOs and chief financial officers and the way people in those two roles view B2B marketing. Too often, it's still viewed as a support function, specifically a sales support function, whereas in more advanced companies, and I say advanced in terms of companies that really understand modern marketing, marketing is viewed as a revenue driver and a very strategic function in its own right. So very often, the concept of marketing enablement, for example, and what to expect from marketing is something that's not well understood by a lot of CEOs and, again, chief financial officers. And I find that really holds back a lot of very talented marketing leaders and their teams from being able to do all the things they could be doing for the business. And ultimately, it really inhibits business growth. Beyond that, though, the other big challenges I see are a little bit more mundane and obvious, but most chief marketing officers today are really kind of operating in a fog of metrics and technology options. And it's really hard for them to get at what really matters and what's right for their business because there's just so much to choose from and so much of it looks appealing. The kind of cutting through that is really challenging for most marketing leaders. So we are going to talk about data and metrics in a bit, but what I wanted to touch upon right now was, uh, you know, a couple of strategies or tactics you'd put in place or suggest marketers put in place, especially to drive revenue. Because you spoke about it, you spoke about how new age companies are, they look at marketing now as a performance marketing driven function, not just as a cost center. So a lot of young marketers are looking at revenue, they're looking at, they measure ROI based on the number of uh, meetings they've been able to generate and QLs they've been able to generate. So what strategies or tactics would you put in place? to drive revenue if that was the call It's a really good question. I would say the number one strategy to have in place is to take a very audience-centric approach in everything you do from demand planning to execution to creation of content and messaging and everything in between. And when I say audience-centric, really what I mean by that is not only understanding who your buyer personas are, what the buying process looks like, but also getting into details like really understanding the nature of your offerings at an offering and audience kind of pairing level. And we have a word for that. It's called demand type. And I'll just give you one example of what I mean. Everybody says, well, we understand what we're selling or trying to sell, and we understand the audiences we're trying to sell it to. But oftentimes I find that companies don't really think through the implications of that. So this concept of demand type is one where there's really three types of demand, and it's a spectrum. There are no hard lines between them, and they range from what we call new concept, where you're trying to bring something to market that your potential customers have never heard of, they have no budget for it, all the way to what we call established market, where you're selling them something that they know that they need in order to run their business. So a company like Staples would be a great example of an established market. People understand that they need paper and pens and chairs 
person's desk. And your job as a marketer or a salesperson there is just to say, okay, well, here's why you want to buy them from us as opposed to your competitors, right? So you need to really focus on your unique differentiation and competitive strategies and pricing plays a big role. Whereas with new concepts, you really have to understand, okay, well, we have to educate our audience about why they even want to think about needing whatever it is we're selling to them because they have no budget for it. They have no real perceived need just yet. Now, between those two things is what we call new paradigm, which is where most companies are, where they're saying, hey, I need to get my customers to buy something or do something differently that they're already doing. And we have a better way for them to do that. So if you can define demand type, and there's a series of ways of doing that. It's pretty simple. Usually it's a group effort across sales, marketing, product to really understand where you sit there. But understanding that will allow you to create more compelling messaging, content, understand the quality and quantity of leads that you need to generate, what the role of marketing versus sales is going to be as you go to market. So having that depth of insight into your audiences is really going to drive virtually every decision that you have. Um, Beyond that, obviously measurement is key. Uh, Every marketing organization needs to be learning about what's working and what's not working. And when I say what's working, I mean what is actually resulting in pipeline contribution and ultimately closed one revenue. And if you can link that back to the series of tactics and strategies that are driving that most effectively and adjust as you work, then you're gonna be much more successful over time than you will be if you just keep your head down and keep executing. And again, that's a problem. So many marketing organizations are just so overwhelmed that they uh, are just in execution mode and forget to learn and improve as as they go. Beyond that, the individual tactics, I won't say aren't relevant. They're always relevant, but they're uniquely effective in different situations. Have you been seeing a lot of ABM B2B marketing companies are, uh, B2B marketers are very interested in it. They look at it as a core strategy now uh, in many cases. Oh, yeah. So, What are your thoughts on account-based marketing? Where do you see it go this year? And also, what are the top factors you would tell marketers to keep in mind when they're on the ABM journey? Especially when, obviously, ROI is obviously a top priority. Sure. Well, I can honestly say account-based marketing has been and continues to be all the rage. Virtually every client organization we work with at Series Decisions is focused on it in one form or another. And it does take many different forms. And it's funny because I've even had clients say, hey, we really want to build an account-based marketing capability. And in some cases, it just doesn't apply necessarily. I mean, it, it will always apply in some form or another, but what they're thinking about in terms of ATM doesn't apply. So very hot topic. Everybody's trying to get it right. Some companies are doing a great job, others are struggling. But where we see it working very, very effectively is when marketing leaders especially understand that it's not just account-based marketing, it's really account-based go-to-market strategies because it has to extend across sales and marketing. So if marketing is taking an account-based approach, but their sales organization isn't set up that way, it's only going to have very limited success. And it's actually ultimately going to create a misalignment between sales and marketing. So really understanding that okay, well, for this to work, we have to um, be working very closely with sales and collaborating at an individual level. That's key. And again, just like so much of what I already said, it starts with this shared understanding of customers, which will ultimately lead to rational account selection as well. Because most of what we see working very well in account-based marketing is large and strategic account marketing, right? Focusing on those big customers where you're trying to grow within them or secure them as new clients. And knowing how and what the criteria are for selecting those accounts is really key. Too often we see 
marketing just acquiescing to whatever sales said. They said, hey, this is a really important account for us. We need to, you know, use some ABM against this account. But that's not always the best way to approach it because it's really hard to understand what the opportunity looks like within that account, what our relationship and reputation with that account, what that already looks like. And also it's key to understand, hey, which salespeople who are dedicated to these accounts are going to be the most collaborative with us in marketing because that's going to drive success too. So, you know, I prefer to think about it less as account-based marketing. Again, account-based go-to-market is the way we see it working best. That's an interesting way to put it. So obviously data is a key ingredient here. How should marketers in this space use data and especially what kind of data and metrics to measure their ROI, to measure their campaigns? Sure. So there's a whole set there. So obviously some of the standard data applies when you're thinking about account-based marketing and B2B marketing in general. So, you know, you want to understand your engagement metrics. So to what extent are you acquiring and holding the attention of your targets, right? Are they, are they responding when you want them to respond? Are they engaged with your content and your messaging? Are they taking the actions you're trying to drive? That's key. Also understanding standard conversion data, right? Again, are they responding in the way you want? Are they converting through your funnel the way you want? And then of course, looking at, you know, pipeline contribution and revenue is all part of that too. But there's a much more broad set of data, I think, that's really critical to understanding how to be effective, especially when you're looking at account-based approaches. And one of the key ones there is, of course, intent data, because without it, your view of the activity that's going on at an account level is going to be very limited to your own data, right? Your own properties. So you'll understand when somebody within an account is opening an email or forwarding that email on or coming to your website and taking certain actions. But it's important to remember that that's just a very limited set of data. There's a much broader scope of things that they're doing that will indicate need and propensity. And without having that intent data, I'm not saying that account-based marketing doesn't work. You can make it work, but it's just less effective. And uh, when you speak about intent data, are you seeing a lot of installed tech data or technographics being used here in this process? Yeah, we are. I mean, and it's only on the rise. In fact, it's one of the big trends that we've been tracking for a while now. And it's linked directly to some very key trends that are going on. So intent data is key, technographic data is key, and all of this is being utilized when it's being utilized in the right ways. It's being utilized to create much better experiences for target audiences. And I'll probably say this a few times as we talk today, but customer experience is probably the biggest trend that we're observing at Serious Decisions. Even in the B2B world, everybody that we're trying to engage are also consumers, and their expectations are defined by their experiences as consumers. Also, in the B2B world, we live in a recurring revenue world, right? So everybody is has or is developing recurring revenue models. So retaining existing customers is truly critical. And I think everybody understands now that customer experience starts even well before your customers become your customers, right? It's the first time you touch them or the first time they come to your website or have any kind of digital experience. So we're seeing this used a lot to drive better experiences, more personalized experiences um, for customers and prospects. And again, through those approaches, they're really driving better engagement and better affinity and better outcomes, ultimately. Interesting. So, of course, we can't not speak about the demand unit waterfall. How best should B2B marketers, especially small to mid-sized product-based companies, extract value from this process? So the demand unit waterfall is directly in line with everything we've been talking about. And we developed it, frankly, because of a disconnect between sales and marketing. So the reality that I think everybody intuitively knows in the B2B world 
is that it's typically not individuals that are making purchases or purchase decisions, right? It's groups of people that are making those decisions within our accounts. Um, there are end users involved. There are influencers involved. There are executives involved. There are ratifiers, people like chief financial officers and legal who are involved in making these decisions. So every salesperson understands that. They know that they're talking to and engaging a large number of people within the accounts that they're trying to close. But in marketing, we've continued to see a focus on individual leads, right? So I'm going to generate a lead and pass it over to sales. So, so what sales is experiencing isn't necessarily translated into how marketing operates, and it's not translated well into systems either. And, and just one example of that is, again, you might see an opportunity in the Salesforce automation platform that has one contact associated with it. Meanwhile, the sales rep is dealing with a number of contacts, and, you know, sometimes more than 10 contacts within that account. So the demand unit waterfall was really built, well, it was purposely built to address this problem that is creating a lot of misalignment in B2B companies. So it's time to focus on buying groups and track the progression of these buying groups through various stages in a funnel, which is that demand unit waterfall. And it's really ultimately a process evolution for most companies. Certainly, they have to think about technology and data to really make it operate efficiently. So, for example, contact data has to be clean and typically improved in most companies. So you have to make sure that you don't have multiple versions of the same account names in your contact databases. You have to make sure that you have complete and, again, clean contact data and that all contacts are associated properly with those accounts, for example. But also... Intent data plays a key role here as well, because again, it gives you a broader view of activity that's happening typically within a broad buying group that, by the way, can easily extend across buying centers. So for example, IT could be involved, sales and marketing can be involved within one business, finance can be involved, and being able to kind of look more broadly at behaviors and activities that are indicating need is really what's key to making that demand unit waterfall work, because ultimately, Demand unit waterfall, what makes it relevant is the pairing of these buying groups with need, identifying need and pairing those groups together so that you can really focus in your marketing and sales efforts. Thanks for thanks for talking so much uh, so much in detail about the demand unit waterfall because uh, I think that's what our audience would really benefit from and, and it's what's most interesting right now when you look at what serious decisions I've been putting out there. So the next thing we want to talk about are the tools and the techniques you've seen most noise around in the past year. What are you currently using in terms of tools, in terms of marketing technology to enable your efforts? So, I mean, there's so many out there, but certainly we're seeing a lot of good use of data augmentation tools. So in some cases, this is real-time IP lookup, which is great and works very well for a lot of our companies to be able to understand what's happening at an account level. Other forms of data augmentation tools, back-end databases linked to your contact databases and um, front-end websites and things like that is key. Certainly, intent monitoring platforms are one of the most widely adopted tools that we're seeing being used by especially more advanced marketing organizations within our client base. And, of course, predictive analytics play a key role in there as well. Predictive analytics is really interesting, though, because there was kind of a big start to it and then a slowdown because... What we found was that a lot of our clients who adopted predictive analytics just found that they didn't have the right data or the necessary data to make it truly work for them. Because predictive analytics really relies heavily on a strong set of historical data that they can then use to predict future outcomes. 
a lot of times that historical data just either wasn't there or it was um, there wasn't enough of it or it's not clean enough data. So the predicted outcomes were off in many cases. So a lot of companies now are catching up and they're addressing those issues. But again, that's one of the nice things about intent monitoring because it doesn't rely on your own data and it's more real time. It's not really about predicting what might happen in the future. It's about really understanding what's happening right now and using that to become more focused. But beyond that, we do see our clients using a whole set of other tools to really drive, again, new levels of personalization at scale. AI is all the rage now, and I think that's one of the big trends that's going just to continue to develop as companies are applying artificial intelligence to the data that they have and the data that they're creating in order to create personalization at scale. And that happens across email, websites, and all kinds of digital action interactions as well. But we're also seeing a big focus on things like interactive content, right? People really wanting to engage more deeply with content and information and consume it in new ways. Yeah. And that's also part of the overall customer experience that they want it to be better and interactive content gives them that. That's why there's been this growing demands. Absolutely. I think this was a great conversation. I hope you had a good time uh, participating and uh, being a guest on our show. We'd love, we'd love for you to share some uh, words or you know some takeaways for young marketers out there, people who are still on their journey, people who aspire to be CMOs in the future. What would you tell them before we before we call it a day? Well, first of all, thank you for the conversation. It was a lot of fun, and they were all great questions. So that's a wonderful question to ask um, because I do as I said, work with a lot of CMOs and I've had a lot of opportunity to observe what makes for effective and successful CMOs, but also I've had a lot of opportunity to observe the career paths that they take and how they end up in, in uh, that marketing leadership role. So for younger marketers and uh, people in the middle of their career who are looking to become CMOs, I, I would say the biggest thing that you can focus on is getting a range of experience as a marketer, right? Don't lock yourself into one part. Now, it is true that more and more we're seeing CMOs with backgrounds in data analytics and operations, but also they're usually pretty strong in things like product marketing. And product marketing is an area where it's become a bit of a lost art. So again, a lot of my clients who are CMOs, they do a lot of hiring and they'll reach out to me and other analysts here at Serious Decisions to help them network and find good candidates. And I will say right now, the hardest hire to make is good product marketers. So that should be an area of focus. And most companies, especially technology companies, want people who really understand product marketing and can do things like category creation, for example. I would also say, in addition to product marketing, operations, demand is key, right? So if you don't understand demand and how to drive demand, Marketing isn't going to get the credibility it needs to have within the business to do all the other things it should do. It's kind of the foundation now. If your demand approaches are not effective, you're going to continue to be viewed as a support function. So understanding that is key, but I don't want to undersell the importance of creative as well. Creative is still very important, but the fact is less and less often do we see CMOs being hired who have a purely creative background, pure brand backgrounds, for example. Even in the biggest enterprises, they're largely looking for people who are really good business people who happen to be marketing leaders. So that's kind of the last thing I'll say about this is that understanding business is key to being a good marketing leader. You can't only be steeped in marketing language and marketing knowledge. You have to be able to communicate effectively with CEOs, sales leaders, and chief financial officers as well and be able to speak their language. And really that's what's going to make you stand out as a marketing leader because frankly, 
they're not going to understand or really care much about things like page views and clicks and those types of things. They're going to care about yeah. business outcomes. So being able to speak that language is really key. Thank you so much for your time, Jay. It was great having you and I uh, hope you have a great day ahead. Well, thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.